0: The ability to harness a creative process enables brands and creative teams to establish a rhythm that leads to more inspired ideas and concepts. Brand communication has become more of a science than ever, and it's a team effort that needs various voices from many walks of life. How do some people lead these creative processes successfully while finding brand and agency collaborations along the way? To find answers to these questions, in this episode, I'm excited to talk to Kojo Bafu. He's a seasoned content creator, strategist, keynote speaker, and content producer. Kojo is the former editor of the men's business and lifestyle magazine, Destiny Man. He was also the host of Life with Kojo on Kaya FM, among many other roles. He shares some of his experiences from working with various teams and brands where he built processes and led creative content strategy.
1: Everybody always goes, content is king, right? Yes. Uh, but for me, context is everything. Content is just content. Yeah. Until it's contextualized, until it's relevant, it is just words or pictures or videos, etc.
0: Having a process and multiple voices that are listened to, Kojo believes makes for brand stories that resonate. Enjoy the show. Welcome to The Lead Creative, where we talk to the creative minds behind some of the leading brands, businesses, organizations, and top ideas that we all love. Our chats range from building brands, conceptualizing new products, strategy, and building businesses. I'm your host, Mongae Zimtati. Kojo. Thank you for taking the time to join us. No, thank you for having me. To start off Kojo, I mean, just looking um, at your profile, you know, one of the things that stand out for me is the fact that you are of Ghanaian German heritage, you grew up in Lesotho. you came to Joburg and you lived, I mean, most of your life in Joburg and you're based in Joburg now, but you've also travelled a lot which led to a lot of your distinct experiences growing up and influencing your work as well how do these unique experiences influence your thinking in the work that you do
1: well I mean look I think it starts with so you know I do have kind of a a very mixed mixed heritage but I think it starts with more growing up in the and going to a school that had multiple nationalities, whether it was in the student body or amongst our teachers. I mean, at some stage it was said that we had up to fifty different nationalities in the school. Wow, that's um, fascinating. I mean what that does is that and then as a child also I used to travel to Germany quite regularly to visit, you know, to visit relatives until like I was like my early teens. And so what that does is that it gives you a certain perspective or understanding of yourself within context of the world overall. You know, so my father used to say, we'll have our head office in Maseru and we'll have, you know, branches in New York, Paris, London, etc. And it didn't seem far-fetched. Yeah. Just from a conceptual perspective. I mean, it didn't happen. But at the end of the day, you know, it didn't seem that that far-fetched so the, the thing about my i guess my background and my upbringing is it just taught me that to a certain extent you know i have a place in the world yeah you know, whatever spaces I go into, whatever spaces I occupy, I have as much right to be there as anybody else. And it's it's that understanding that is it's not you know it's not a thought about thing. It's just inherent in how I was raised and how I how I view the world. Absolutely. Um, and and then also you know, in essence, sitting on the fence. Um, you know, when when I first started coming to South Africa after high school, when I was in varsity because I went to varsity in Durban. Um, and then this was like '92, where people say you must pick a side. Uh, you know, you pick a German, pick an and you know, pick, pick black, pick white. Like you must pick a side and 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 kind of plant a flag as to where you stand. And I've always said I don't need to pick a side. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm very I'm very happily on the fence because you know each one of the places that I've I've grown up and each one of the experiences that I've had, every influence that I've had has made me who I am. Yeah, it's a potpourri of experiences, and I couldn't pinpoint and say, okay, because of X, Y, Z, I think this particular way, Uh, but it's just a sum of all those experiences.
0: But I'm guessing that a lot of it also, I suppose, influenced how you view the world, because from the sound of it, no part of the world was almost too far off or far-fetched in your mind, even growing up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like my mother was German. We left Germany when I was a baby. Like, we eventually moved to Lesotho when I was about three, four years old. And that's where I grew up. And that's that's where kind of home is. But, you know, at the same time, I still interacted with, with Germany in different ways. My heritage was never something that was, you know, kept secret or kept in the background. It's a part of who I am. I only went to Ghana when I was what? I went when I was about five years old and then I went again when I was 38 years old. Yeah. But even going to Ghana, you know, my father was Ghanaian. And although he naturalized in Lesotho, I grew up around Ghanaian. So the first time I went there, I felt at home, even though I'd never lived or been there. Yeah. Uh, There was an element that, you know, that kind of, for me, felt at home. And Lesotho is the country that raised me. You know, after Vasti, I went back to Lesotho and I worked for a couple of years before I actually moved to Joburg. So yeah. each place does have influence, but I was also raised to you know, to be proud of and to acknowledge your heritage and where you come from. And, you know, it's, it's the old cliche, if you don't know where you come from, how are you going to know where you're going? Absolutely. Uh,
0: how did that then influence, I guess, or at least help to form your thinking? in the creative pursuits that you then went on to develop in life
1: what's very interesting is that so my background i did a bcom i majored economics marketing and business administration i went into the family business which was management consulting we had an it company we had a couple of shops at some stage that was the area i was going to go into that was what i was going to do for the rest of my life the more creative pursuits i mean like i was a sprinter so i was A sports person, but I also wrote poetry. And I wrote poetry for me. Like Mm. I always say when I started writing poetry, it was more therapy. It was a way of making sense of stuff. And writing in general, you know, I was always encouraged to write. So I've always kind of written. And it, it was more a release for me. And you know, from a work perspective or from a professional perspective, you know, I was writing reports and proposals for studies and on small business development and that sort of stuff. So if you had met me even as a what 24, 25 year old, yeah. Uh, while while I've always enjoyed and I've always been interested in things like music and explored those kind of things, but my path was very firmly on, you know, I was going to be an entrepreneur, or I was because I worked right through high school. I worked on weekends and holidays and university i also worked and i used to go home once a month i guess the more creative side of of me and i guess my personality or my character um came when i discovered the poetry scene in jobo
0: and at the time you you were at the most founding minds of that movement which went on to i guess first of all take over newtown quite a lot and over time represent africa on international stages
1: yeah, look, it was a very interesting time. I think it was an interesting time because there was a transition going on. So the poets that came before us, this was like 1999, 2000, the poets that came before us had been part of the struggle to a certain extent and it was very political. But now you had young South Africans having to grapple with with more than just the politics, like you know, uh, more, you know more the social issues and that sort of stuff. I mean, interesting enough, I just left an IT consulting company I'd started with a friend of mine, and I was working with a fashion designer, um, another friend who I was working with him to kind of just rebuild his business and rebuild his brand, and and discovered Jungle Connection, which was in Fontaine then, uh, just because musician friends of mine were performing there that night. And when I went through, I, was, I saw people standing on a stage and doing poetry. And I was like, oh, you can do that? And and then kind of started becoming a lot more active in that space. So th- that was when I, I probably started to pursue, call it the creative, you know, the creative aspect of, of me a lot more. And then also, I mean, around, well, a couple of years after that, like the early 2000s, I, was, I worked as a book at an actor's agency. I was also, I had a cousin of mine who was in TV production, so I used to help him write TV concepts. Because of that, I started, I guess in a way, I started kind of finding that balance between let's call it the creative uh, as well as the business world because, so for example, you're pitching a TV show. You need to be able to articulate the image that people have in their heads in such a way that the person commissioning will be able to see it. But it's not just articulating a creative concept, it's also articulating yes. you know, um, production, like how is it going to run? You know, What does the money look like? Uh, are they guaranteed to get kind of bang for their buck? Yes. Um, so because of that, I kind of found myself in that space. I've always written, I've always been, I'd like to think relatively capable when it comes to writing. And I grew up writing a lot of business writing and then doing the poetry, I was able to, there was a stage where it felt like I'd been able to find that that medium between the two. Right? Yeah. Where you kind of use one writing hat um, or you have, you know, I would have the poetry lens influence how I write proposals. Yes. To add a lot more color to it, you know, to to make it a bit more visual. So the writing side, it was, you know, one thing led to another. I've never, I've never really sat and planned and gone, okay, so I'm doing this now. So the next thing I'm going to do is that. It's often been just a, you know, I'm doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. Oh, look, there's an opportunity there. Yeah, does it yeah. make sense. Ah, let me go and do it.
0: Just to uh, fast forward quite a lot, you know, from that time, you know, with the poetry circle and uh, when you were, as opposed, to pitching shows early on and working on TV concepts. Mm. There was a time during your tenure as editor at Destiny Man that you were leading creative processes there, but also finding interesting themes for the magazine itself, right? How did you harness the creative thinking and the outputs while balancing those parts with the advertising side and then having to put together what was arguably, you know, one of the most significant magazines of its time, yeah, you know, when it, when it was still in operation.
1: So what I always find interesting about the media is that the media presents a particular image, right? But behind the scenes can be grueling. You know, it's long hours, it's, it's hard, it can be hard work, but there's process to it. You know, there's very simple and very clear processes in terms of how you put together, for example, an issue. The key thing for me, and it's something that I think we're still struggling with, particularly in this country when it comes to any kind of media. Yeah. Um, any any storytelling medium because all of this stuff is storytelling, right? So when I was Destiny Man and I I did I raised it with one or two advertisers, and I don't think my bosses or the advertisers were pleased. Where I'd say, and you want me to write an article about your product
0: yeah. and,
1: <laughs> and make it look like make it look like I'm writing about it because I wanted to write about it, because you don't want to advertise. Mm-hmm. Because with adverts, somebody looks at it and goes, It's it's an ad, and a lot of times people skim by. I'm like, but so if I do that, then your competitors, when your competitors come and say, you did X for those people, we want the same thing. Mm -hmm. I start to lose credibility with my readers. If I lose credibility with my readers, they stop buying the magazine, they stop buying the magazine, you stop supporting the magazine. So at the heart of it, and I considered my job I mean, yes, I had things that I was measured on within the business in terms of, you know, sales of the magazine, advertising, and I'd go to meetings and, you know, I'd do all of that sort of stuff. But I considered my job as basically custodian or I was there representing the readers. And and so in representing the readers, it's ensuring that whatever stories that we cover, one, reflect them, but also you know, it's reflect them in an honest and authentic way. But also then, you know, share with them things that at the end of the day, we felt were relevant for them. Yes. But to do that, you need to understand who those people are. Right. And yeah. where I say the, the struggle that we still have in this country in particular is that, you know, frankly, when it comes to black, there is no nuance. Yes. Uh, it's black men are homogenous. Uh, black women are homogenous. Whereas, you know, in essence, we aren't. Like, whereas you could put five black men in a room of the same age and their interests and, you know, their interests, their pursuits, etc., are very different. Yes, there's core threads that run through all of them, but there's also a difference. I considered my job to, to be able to, you know, unpack that nuance yeah. and ensure that stories are relevant, hmm. you know, tied into that nuance. And, you know, at the same time, like I've always operated with a bit of an agenda because I was brought up with a very pan-African view of the world. My father grew up in Ghana, you know, in Kwame Nkrumah's times, and that's what I was raised with. You know, so sometimes I would squeeze stuff through that it's important that it's there. Yes. It's, it's not necessarily, you know, something that or anybody else would look at, but it's the subtleties, you know, mm-hmm. it's the subtleties. It's, and, and I did this in radio as well. If you're talking about something scientific, yes uh, and it's a very simple example but if you talk about something scientific is there somebody you you know who's black or is colored or it's or is indian or mixed race or however you wanted to find it yeah that can come and talk about that because the norm has always been caucasian
0: yes just on that this notion of diversity, transformation, and representation actually comes up a lot. I mean, I think this is the third time in you know, three different episodes that it's coming up. How important is that what you've just mentioned there like finding different voices voices of color voices that represent people in various and many spaces especially when you represent the media or at least are on Mm -hmm. the media side of content creation and putting content out there
1: look it's very simple it's not just about having a seat at the table so the starting point is you need a diverse group of people sitting around the table because not everybody is going to have line of sight or understanding of the implications of of particular decisions, right? Yes. Um, So you want to have that diverse group around the table. But as important or even more importantly, is that that diverse group is actually listened to. Yes. Because, Because the challenge we're still having is that you can see a diverse table, but who's making the final call? And, you know, is the person making the final call open to hearing other perspectives? And I've had this, like, you know, speaking to, for example, young black professionals in advertising and communications where, you know, they complain like, you're we're in the room, but nobody's listening to what we're saying, right? You know, nobody has that understanding. So, look, it's extremely important. I mean, so, for example, you were talking about process. I mean, the process is very simple. You know, in the magazine, we had certain sections that happened every, you know, every issue so you literally use that table of contents to guide you through the process so you start with the first thing and you go okay well you know is there a broader theme that we're looking at and within that broader theme then this particular article we're going to profile a business person you know who is out there you come to an editorial meeting with ideas already yes everybody throws ideas around and you have a conversation around it I guess as editor, to a certain extent, I mean, I answer to the publisher, but as editor, it'd be, okay, I like those two. Yes. Let's put those two down as, as options. You know, you go through it like that. And if we have a particular topic, I mean, one of my favorite examples was having a conversation around doing a piece on, first of all, you know, the deaths that have been happening around circumcision. And so there was a discussion around whether we should cover something like that. And so, as a starting point, I didn't feel like it was relevant for us to cover because of who we were and who we were positioned. It's like the news and everybody else can talk about the negative story. Uh, yes, I considered our job to highlight the good that was out there, hmm. and and not blindly, you know, not blindly highlight it. So you know, with some depth to it. That was my one concern, and then my second concern was that when it comes to, and at the time I went and researched it, when it came to, you know, circumcision or that whole process, basically it's primarily Xhosa people that do it. And that's the, you know, that's the majority. So, and then with Zonga and Venda as a smaller portion. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I mean, can we determine that the majority of our readers are Tosa and therefore it's relevant to them? Is it relevant to all of us? Is it something that's important that we need to cover because a whole bunch of other people are covering. Yes. And so in having discussions like that, you know, if it's something that related to Chinese people or Japanese or, you know, a Bulgarian, I perhaps don't have the context. It would be important to then have somebody with that context to be able to contribute to the conversation.
0: And I think a lot of the time we, we almost miss that very important nuance, I guess, that you bring up where A story doesn't necessarily cover everybody and you need to be cognizant of the nuances of Mm. those people or that people that you are talking about.
1: Because even if you decide to do it, you need to make that decision being informed. You're making that decision very consciously to say... Regardless of all of this other stuff, I feel it's something that needs to be talked about. And I feel it's something that, for example, our readers need to hear. And therefore, that's why we're doing it. We used to run events, and I'd have like my readers would come to the events. And without fail, eventually, what I used to do when I got on stage, I used to open up with why we have a certain person on the cover. Because I knew that without fail, the guys would be like, okay, why did you have so and so on the cover? I don't, I don't think it's a good idea. Hmm. And You're never going to please everybody. So a lot of times it'd be, okay, well, I acknowledge that you don't agree with that person on the cover, but this is why we did it. And to be able to say, this is why we did it, you need to be clear on it. You need to go through that process of, that decision-making process to go, at the end of the day, this is, like, we stand by what we did. And sometimes I had to stand by stuff the way the publisher's like, you know, I don't agree with it. And then the publisher's like, okay, but we're going to do it anyway. And then once that decision has been made, I'm the person who has to go up and stand for it. And I'm not going to stand up and go, oh, yeah, I didn't want this thing to happen. Therefore, like yeah. because we've gone through a process and I understand why I may not agree, but I understand why that's why we've done that. And so when I'm out in public, I would stand, you know, I'd stand by.
0: You mentioned something else, uh, Kojo, and part of the, the process that you worked around and the team and how you worked with the team. The fact that you have to be cognizant of and able all voices to be heard as the leader, you know, mm. of a creative team or as somebody who is a creative process, who's senior in that process. How do you reach that point? How do you get to a point where even you know the most junior person in a team, whose confidence may not be at the level of of the most senior person in that for them to raise their voice in a way that is beneficial for the whole and for the creative process such that, you know, that voice comes out and that voice is, is not only heard, but reflected in what you produce.
1: So with the editorial teams that I've had, it was, like I said, and I go, you want to get the different people. So if anybody, you know, so the fashion intern is going to sit in the meeting with the fashion director. Right. And the fashion, you know, or the fashion edits and the fashion edits is going to come with certain ideas. And no one person can know everything. Right. Yes. Uh, because it's particularly when you're dealing with content, like even now I'll put together an editorial plan and it's, you know, you're spending a lot of time just trying to figure out where to get ideas for stories or people to interview. So I'm not going to know everybody who is out there. So it was important to be sitting in a room with people who knew that if we're talking about something and you know of someone, or you've heard of a business, or you've heard of an experience, or you've heard of a product, to say, oh, I heard about this particular product. And then for us to sit and go, okay, well, let's look at it and let's unpack it. And somebody else may go, yeah, I'd heard about it, but this is what I heard. And you know, the beauty of the internet these days is that while you're sitting there, you you can literally Google that stuff. Absolutely. Recently, I was sitting, there's a guy who runs sessions, uh, strategy sessions, and he asked me to facilitate them. And so recently, I was on a call with with the team, and they have an intern, and he has somebody that works with them. And we were talking about who next to host. It's called the Think a Newer strategy sessions. But we were talking about who next to have, you know, to have on the thing. And, you know, the woman says to me, Kojo, so do you have any ideas? Have you thought of anything? And I'm like, no. I haven't like I literally hadn't processed them dealing with life and I just came on the call. And then she was like, okay, well, this is what we found. Yes. Um, you know, here three story ideas and we went through, like we spent 30 minutes and we went through each one. Right. So like the first one I'm like, okay, I hear you on that. And, but I, what I like is this, but I think it's a problem with that. The second one I'm like, I absolutely love that. Love that one. Right. Yes. And I guess it's also, it comes from like production. So doing TV production, the person that nobody ever takes into consideration is a researcher, um, but the researcher is the person who's going out and actually finding the stories. And I found that when I was in production, my researcher, like I could see what he really bought into a particular story because how he presents that story, he's going to unpack the thing. And then the other stories be like, yeah, so this person, they have this business, I think they'd be really dope to interview. And then you have having to probe, you have having to go, okay, but what about this and what about that? But honestly, creating a space where it's like, okay, well, what do, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And, you know, at the same time, accepting that at the end of the day, for example, the buck stops somewhere. So yes. if you're the person where the buck stops, that's where it stops. And and it's being able to, to be inclusive and open, but also at, at some point then going, okay, well, I have heard what you said, but this is what we're going to do because I don't agree with X, Y, Z. And, and doing it in such a way that people don't sit... And I'm not offended. At the end of the day, all we want is for us, our voices to be heard. Yes. And for what we're contributing to be engaged with. Once that's happened, it's also understanding that it's not always going to go your way. And that's what happens when you work for somebody. Like, you know, everybody always has a boss. You know, I freelance, but my bosses are then my clients. Like, I may think that we should do things a particular way. But at the end of the day, they will go, okay, cool. This is the way we're going. And then I have to execute on it, right?
0: Just to sw- switch um, things a little bit without, uh, I think, talking only about, you know, your experiences in the in the sort of editorial space and now um, strategy, right? I mean, as a content strategist, you see and, and work with many brands. And I think sometimes you probably look at certain brand messages with that hat on, you know, with the hat off this brand is getting it right or this brand consistently Mm -hmm. gets it wrong. And there have been many instances in recent times when brands have been uh, getting it wrong.
1: Um,
0: But are there brands that almost consistently get it right in telling brand stories and telling these stories in a way that um, has a a positive Pan-African outlook to it? Because you mentioned that you have that Pan-African outlook to some of the work that you do, or at least you brought it into some of the rooms that yeah. some of the big boardrooms that you're in. Are there brands that get it right, like that tell stories in a way that resonates from a sort of Pan-African perspective that are doing it well
1: in your perspective? Look, the starting point for me for everything is who's your community? Yeah. And who are you and what you stand for? And then being able to communicate that consistently. But understanding that that community is diverse and, you know, this continent is a diverse continent. So the biggest challenge we've always had, and we see it here, but you see it continentally, is where brands try to, you know, paint with one brush. Yes. And like you just you can't do that because people are so diverse and so different. So, you know, from a Let's call it from a commerce perspective. Off the top of my head, I don't know brands that are... Nobody pops into my mind where I can go, okay, well, that particular brand, when it comes to a presence in multiple countries, they're getting it totally right. But I think it's more about their operations in those countries and what they're doing in those specific countries. So if you look at like an MTN, you look at like a Shoprite. I can't sit in South Africa and go, they're getting it right in Kenya until I really... Go into Kenya, engage with them from that perspective. I was having a recent conversation. What was, what's been interesting for me with Shoprite in particular is that, and I think that's where some of the other, you know, supermarkets and retail retailers have struggled, is that Shoprite, without fail, always has products from the country on their shelves. So while they bring in everything like everybody else does, you know, there's certain products that people of a country—that's what they like. That's what they eat. Yes, uh, and it's not a just coming and transplanting. And look, South African companies have done that for years and bent their fingers, where it literally is a coming and transplanting what what worked in South Africa into, you know, into a different country. I watched games set up in Ghana. Yeah. And, and I remember going into the game and the manager was a white South African man. Hmm. Um, and you're going but does this person understand the nuances of the environment even if the products are what you know what i get down the road i think there are brands that are doing it hmm. but doing it from a operational and business perspective the key is knowing who your community is and understanding your community that's what i always go back to um, yes exactly. i always go back to understand who not my market but understand who my community is and then ensure that I am relevant and contextual within within. Them. Um, so one of my cheesy lines is because you know everybody always goes content is king, right? Yes. Uh, but for me, context is everything. Content is just content yeah. until it's contextualized, until it's relevant. It is just words or pictures or videos, etc. Yes.
0: Can you tell us anything about uh, the book that you are busy writing at the moment? Because I know you're.
1: Yeah. Um, it's yeah. It's a it's a weird book. Um, <laughs> It's weird in that, I think, you know, imposter syndrome is real for a lot of us. And I've even written blog posts around it. Yeah. So, I mean, I always joke and I say it's my fifth book, but it's the first one that I'm actually going to put to paper. Yeah. So I started initially, I was looking to write a book on fatherhood when my son was born and he's now 13. And just kind of the lessons I've learned from being a father, because, you know, it teaches you a lot if you allow it to, you know, things like consistency and setting precedent and you know having fun yada yada and and then over the years I've kind of I was like okay let me do a business book using fatherhood as the basis and my father passed away a couple years back and I've been talking to him about writing his life story Mm. um, because I find like I lived in, I grew up in one place and then I moved to another place. But when I look at my father's life, that's what I found kind of a lot more fascinating. And he was my only parent from when I was one because my mother passed away when I was one. So after he passed away, I realized he hadn't written much. And I was like, okay, maybe I should write a book about his life from my perspective. So now my book basically is... It's basically reflections on being a son, being a father, being a man, being an African man, and the things that I've kind of learned from the different experiences that I've had. Yeah. Uh, So it literally is, it's going to have some poetry in there. I haven't been writing, I haven't written poetry consistently in over a decade, but I uh, will have some poetry in there, and it's, yeah, it's that. It, it's just a reflection on on these different things, a reflection on, like, my mother passed when I was young, so that impacted on my relationship with women and my journey through, you know, my journey through life. My father raised, we are five kids uh, from three different mothers of three different nationalities, and my father raised all of us. And so even my my perspectives on the role of a father uh, and so, yeah, it, it's really that. It's reflections, it's thoughts, it's like a series of essays and poems and mm-hmm. reflections on on life and the things that I've learned along the way. And you bring in fatherhood quite a bit.
0: I mean, I know that there's, a, I think, a, a keynote talk of yours that has something to do with fatherhood as well. Yeah. Um, in it how does in fact it's not even a question I think it's it it just shows that this for you is an important topic and important enough to also include in your book and also to kind of write about it the way that you are I'm just wondering how this personal experience comes out in your you know in the book itself or how you're finding the process of putting it into a book
1: Look, it's a lot of reflections on stuff. And look, fatherhood is important to me. Um, yeah. For a long time, the idea of having children was easier than the idea of having a partner to have the children with, sure. which is very weird. Um, but also, the way I was raised, um, you know, like my children are my children. You know, I've I joked sometimes, like, if uh, heaven forbid my wife and I were to separate, I'm like, I'd probably stay next door. Hmm. because, you know, um, I considered that's kind of my biggest responsibility and my biggest duty in this world is to ensure that my children, you know, have the opportunity or have the foundation for them to be able to go and do whatever it is that they want to do with their life. Absolutely. The first time I left Destiny Man, a very big reason why I left Destiny Man was because of my children, because I was never home Hmm. and I was always traveling. And I just, I was just like, you know, the, you know, presence, physical presence is as important, if no more, not more, it was more important than phys- you know than presence with a T. And so I do reflect on it quite a bit. And I just so I guess it, it's being a writer. So yeah. a lot of times I I experience life and watch life at the same time. Uh, when it comes to parenting and when it comes to things that are often charged with emotion, uh, you know you don't always get it right in the moment, but mm-hmm. I honestly do spend a lot of time just reflecting on how to be a better version of me and a better, which means a better father, a better friend, a better son, a better husband, et cetera. So with my kids, yeah, because children also show you up. They put a spotlight on your flaws. Yeah. And and so yeah, I mean, I've got a 13-year-old now. My son is becoming a teenager, and all of a sudden, I've had to like I've spent the last year after thinking I've got a handle on this. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm yeah. good. I got, I got, I got it
0: right. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know this.
1: Yeah, and then my son's becoming a teenager, and that's also you know it's impacted in our relationship. But it's mm-hmm. not just him being different; it's also me reflecting, going, okay, maybe I'm not doing. Like I need to do things, certain things differently. Yes. And it's a constant thing. Because, yeah,
0: because I mean, uh, a number of parents talk about, you know, also uh, being open to figuring it out as you go and as you, as your kids grow and as your family grows as well, Mm -hmm. because all kids are individuals.
1: Yeah. And the relationships are unique as well. And that's all you can do because, I mean, the cliche, another cliche, but there is no manual, but there really isn't a manual. And you're dealing with a unique individual. Hmm. And like you're saying, you know, each child has their own personality. Yes. But also they're evolving. Just like, well, we should be evolving. I mean, I think we slow down or we stagnate as we grow older, but they're evolving at a rapid, you know, at a rapid pace, like a two-year-old versus a three year old. Yes. Uh three year old versus a six-year-old, yes A 3 six-year-old versus a nine-year-old right so every time you think okay you've got this you know you've got this right you know they're evolving and, and sometimes you have to you have to evolve with them yeah. so the most important thing for me is always values so there's certain values and there's certain principles that are important for example to me um and i was listening to an interview and a guy was talking about foundational values right so there's certain values that are at the heart of kind of who i am and how i operate and how i see the world and that stems from my father and before so we're this chain right Um, so it's important that my children learn the same values you know respect respect for others respect for yourself integrity honesty etc once you get beyond that it's yeah, it's a minefield.
0: And I really, I really look forward to reading the book and how you you know how all of this comes together, all of these reflections and and the and the life experiences, I suppose, that will come out of it as well. Yeah, um, the,
1: the pressure, man. The pressure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no pressure at all. <laughs> Not for you. <laughs> just in closing, Kojo, just to go back to I guess the content creation and the creative processes. Yeah that we were talking about earlier um what can brands and creative teams do to harness and build creative processes that lead to content to campaigns and concepts that resonate with their audiences
1: so i think it's a it's a kind of mixture of creating a framework I'm, I'm a big believer in kind of logical paths and steps right so sure. it's, you, know, you start here so you need to create that framework but within it you need to then also leave room for let's call it exploration hmm. because also that's often where the the broad ideas come in but it's really about creating you know a space where people feel comfortable bringing themselves to the table yes i used to do a talk and one of the things i I used to say was that I always find it very weird how people leave themselves at home when they go to work. So, and you look at social media, especially like the early days of Twitter when we used to complain about brands and that sort of stuff. You'll see somebody complaining about a particular service or a particular brand, etc., that that has wronged them in some way. And then they go to work with a different brand. Then when they engage with you, who are now complaining, they engage with you in a particular way so it's like they've left themselves at home yeah
0: they, they I, almost distance themselves from yeah. the strains and stresses yeah. that brands cause them
1: yeah and and i think it's because you know companies will then create these structures that leave no room for the people themselves to bring something to the table right uh, if you look at a lot of the challenges that the challenges that the mishaps that brands will have like on social media and you go if you're Not just the diversity, but allowed people to bring themselves to the table. Somebody would have gone, no, hold on. Like, do you realize, do you see this? Yes, yes. And to do that, you need to create the kind of space where people feel comfortable, you know, comfortable bringing that to the table. It's that balance between process Hmm. and ensuring that there is a process because then it just becomes a free for all, which is counterproductive. Uh, But also in the gaps. Um, leaving room for people to bring themselves to the table and look this conversation around diversity it's an entertaining one sitting on the African continent and yeah and still having that conversation like you can understand from an American a European perspective uh, but within this country I mean there is a unique history which you don't find even across the continent I mean I my father and I were contemplating starting a magazine in Ghana years ago after I'd worked Because my first magazine job was at Black Magazine, yeah. And my father was like, you know, that in Ghana we can't, you can't do this Black Men's Lifestyle Magazine. It's like it's a men's lifestyle magazine. Yeah. There's no, you know, there's no descriptor. Yeah. There's no racial descriptor. You know, it's a Ghanaian's men's magazine, or it's a men's magazine, or it's a lifestyle magazine. So ensuring that there's multiple voices and the voices are listened to, not heard, but listened to. And action comes out of that. At the same time, ensuring that you have process. Absolutely.
0: On that very powerful note, um, Kojo, thank you very much for making the time. Thank you. Uh, I look forward to reading the book when it comes out. Thank you for listening to The Lead Creative. Did you get one insight that's worth sharing from this episode? Please share it with a friend or anyone who might like it. Pop me some of your ideas and innovative finds on Twitter at... Mongezi. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This podcast is also hosted on iafrican.com forward slash radio. You can find me and more of my content on mongezi.com.